Did you know that studies have shown affirmations can profoundly influence your psychological well-being, enhancing self-confidence and reducing anxiety? Here at Positive Birth Australia, we have crafted a 20-minute birth affirmations track filled with soulful, carefully curated affirmations to empower, inspire, and guide you to deeply remember the power you hold within. And to my fellow belly birth mothers, we have created a track specifically for you to honor that all birth is a sacred moment of profound significance. For only $5, you can download and immerse yourself in our affirmations track to transform your mindset in the lead up to birth and during labor, serving as a potent reminder of the inherent power and love you possess. Visit us at www.positivebirthaustralia.com or head to the show notes and follow the link provided to start your journey toward a more empowered birth experience. Welcome to Positive Birth Australia, a podcast created to empower and educate mothers along their own pregnancy journey. Each week, I'll be sharing insightful and inspiring birth stories and advice in the hopes to help you create your own positive birth experience. I'm your host, Sky Marie. Let's get into today's show. Welcome back everyone. Today's episode is full of miracles and heartache featuring the long journey of birth photographer and mother of two Amy. After losing one of her fallopian tubes to an ectopic pregnancy and being told by a specialist that she had minimal chances of conceiving naturally, Amy finally got her miracle baby. Although feeling overwhelmed with gratitude for her healthy baby, it wasn't until her work as a birth photographer, witnessing the power of physiological birth, that made her reflect and face her past pregnancy and birth trauma. After suffering more loss, it was time for Amy to take back her power and gain control over her decisions. She shares with us how she battled the fear and self-doubt anchored within when she decided to home birth her second son, an experience that deeply healed her, and how one act of compassion from a friend sent her on the course to become an award-winning birth photographer. There are definitely moments of sorrow scattered throughout Amy's journey, but mostly courage, strength, and resilience. My hope is that Amy's journey can be a beacon of hope for any of my listeners struggling with fertility. Don't give up. Your miracle baby is coming. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. Do you want to quickly just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so... um... My name is Amy, obviously. Um, we live in Toowoomba in Queensland. Uh, it is myself, my husband, Tim, and we now have two boys, Benji, who is five, and Micah, who is three weeks old yesterday. Oh, a little freshy. <laughs> so fresh. And were those pregnancies planned? Ah, uh, look, <laughs> that's a complicated question. Um, so we have two boys Earthside now, but we've been pregnant eight times. Oh, okay. Um, so, yes, we... They were very intentional babies. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's been such a journey. Mm. Um, so we had a chemical pregnancy in 2014. Then in 2015, I had my first kind of traumatic experience around pregnancy, which was an ectopic. Okay. Um, Why do they call it a chemical pregnancy? Is it not really classified as a baby or? No, it's, it's a pregnancy. So you get a positive pregnancy test, but by the time, like, your period's due, you're bleeding again, essentially. Okay. Um, it's a bit 
of it who knows yeah yeah yeah, so I was told it was a chemical pregnancy but yeah it wasn't enough for me to be super traumatized by it I mean it still felt like a loss but um after so my husband's been married before and um they were going through IVF and did there was no success look I put that down to (laughs) god yeah, <laughs> because then he ended up marrying me, and I, I, I suppose there's so many complications when you come back together when there's kids involved. Obviously, like in a second marriage, so I put that down to God. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, they were doing IVF and had no success. Um. They were seeing a local fertility specialist. Fertility specialist. Um. So after, I think we were trying, um, for like maybe six to eight months. Mm-hmm. Um. And then we went to see the same fertility specialist because um, he'd done all these tests on Tim and stuff um, previously, so we thought that would make sense. Um, And I just remember walking away from that appointment feeling so disheartened. The specialist had done, like, zero testing on me, just questions, but obviously he'd had all the testing he'd done on Tim. Um, You know, I don't know how old that was, but anyway, he basically said to us that we had no hope of having kids without IVF. Oh, wow. Um, That's a big call. It's a really big call to make. And I remember walking out of the office and crossing the road and hitting – I just – you know how sometimes when there's a trauma, you remember specific things like sounds or noises or experiences? I remember hitting the the traffic light button at the road and just just standing there thinking, I'm not – that doesn't feel right. Like, that's not right. That's unfair. And I remember him even saying, like, you've got less than a 5% chance of having kids naturally or something. I'm like, wow. That doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. It just didn't feel right. Yeah. Really didn't sit well. And it was only, you know, months later we fell pregnant naturally. And that was my first, um, no, not my first, that was the ectopic. Could you just quickly explain what an ectopic pregnancy is? Yeah. So an ectopic is where you're, pregnant but the baby doesn't quite make it to your uterus it gets stuck in the tube um and it doesn't quite come down um and I had no idea what an ectopic pregnancy was at that point either so I think that's actually I and I think the theme of a lot of my story is a lack of education causing so much of my own trauma because we make up a story in our head um and you know now that I'm here and I've got baby Micah like that's come from a lot of like a lot of hard work around educating and making decisions for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, with the ectopic, um, I was seven and a bit weeks, eight, nearly eight weeks, and um, I just was going for a scan. And um, I couldn't find my referral and I rang my best friend Mandy and I just said, oh, I'm not going to go. I, I've cancelled my appointment. I can't find the referral. And she was like, no, don't cancel it. Like call like your doctor and see if they'll send through a new one for you. Um, by that stage I'd already cancelled my scan and they're super busy so I didn't expect to get slotted straight back in. But anyway, um, I called the doctor. They were like, yep, no worries. I did not expect that. And then called back the scan place. They're like, yep, no worries and slotted me straight back in. So that felt like a miracle. Um Anyway, I was not in any pain. Everything seemed very normal to me. Like the pain that I, well, the, everything that I was experiencing felt very typical pregnancy type stuff. Um, but I'm laying there for my scan and um, 
we saw the heartbeat. So I felt confident. I was like, oh, yeah, it's a heart beating. Um, but then everybody's mood suddenly changed and the sonographer went out and said, oh, I'm just going to go out and get someone to come in. And I started being like, what's going on here? Um, and then they come back in and they're saying, oh, look, we're so sorry. The baby's in the tube. Um, and I was like, okay, no worries. Like, yeah. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Um, but they all seemed so somber and I was like, this is odd. And they're trying to usher me out the back door and, and they're like, you need to book in with your obstetrician right now, like today. You need to go up and, you know, see them. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I got back to my car and Dr. Google came out and I'm Googling because they said, oh, sorry, it's an ectopic. And I was, they, and I, when they explained that to me about, about it being in the tube, I was like, I don't understand why they can't just move it. I'll ask the obstetrician to just move it. Yeah. <laughs> That's not really how it works. Um, anyway, so that afternoon I was, um, up at the obstetrician and he was very stern with me. He was like, we need to deal with this like today, right now it's life threatening. Um, you could hemorrhage and bleed out from, and just not wake up tomorrow. Like we don't know how bad it is right now. I wasn't in any pain. So, and the baby was still alive. So I don't know whether what what's happening at that point but by the time he'd scanned with that afternoon the baby had passed away there was no heartbeat Mm. um but it was all very confusing and overwhelming and my husband and I were sitting in this appointment with him and we just said and this is another thing that really gets me with the medical world is that they used they use very um harsh terminology you know like that he was saying things like um selective abortion we need to we need to Having a, you need to have a selective abortion. This is not a pregnancy we can save. And I was trying to argue with him to save it. This is obviously before we realised it had already pa- it had passed. The heart was no longer beating. Um, and I just remember sitting there and my husband begging the obstetrician for just a day to think about it. Can we just have a day just to process and think about what we want to do? And he's like, you really don't have a choice about what to do. It's either you, you either have the surgery and she lives or you don't have the surgery and the baby and mum dies. I don't really know much about ectopic pregnancies, but is that a legitimate threat, you dying? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, which is crazy because um, essentially what happens is the the tube bursts and you hemorrhage from the inside out and you just don't wake up after that. (laughs) So, yeah, it was horrifying and we just, he said, look, you can't have a day, but I'll let you sit outside for half an hour if you want. Um, so we just, oh, I'm going to cry just thinking about it. Mm. Um, but we sat outside together for like half an hour and just held each other um, crying, both of us. It was awful. Um, I think at that point my husband was kind of terrified because I was just very headstrong. I was like, no, I'm not I'm not doing that. I saw the baby's heart beating. It's alive. Like, you can just move it. Yeah. Um, but I was just. It was just a lot, you know, when you're learning about something for the first time and someone's saying, like, this is the end, it's it's just a lot to process. Absolutely. Um, We ended up calling my sister-in-law, I think, and just being like, do you know what, because she's super smart. (laughs) I don't know why I just thought to call Erin and she's just listening to us cry. I think that was probably cruel to call her because we couldn't even make sense of ourselves. Like, we just needed someone to tell us that, like, we were just so lost, you know? Yeah. Like, anyway, um, so so by that afternoon, I suppose we'd given in. I was at that point still fighting with the obstetrician. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not doing it. And it's like, well, you'll just lose your life. Like, he was really kind of cross with me. 
Um, he's like, you may not wake up tomorrow. Anyway, in the end, I, th- I think that's probably what scared Tim more so than – I mean, it was awful to lose our baby, but I think he was a bit scared that I was being so headstrong about the surgery because – um, I, maybe it's because the obstetrician was being so stern and clear with us. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, by that afternoon I was in surgery. Um, I'd been knocked out and they took – I begged him to try and keep my tube. Obviously we were still wanting babies, so I was hoping that I would still have two tubes by the end of the surgery um, and they would just remove the baby. Um, and that's another thing. I refuse to call it a pregnancy or a baby or I'm not a – or a baby or a tissue but like it's a baby to me you know that 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 was a baby to me like I had thought about that child's future like I had thought about so much like from the moment you're pregnant you're like attaching yourself to this little being and wondering about the future you know like it's not just tissue to me (laughs) but they kept calling it tissue like and I think that was so triggering to me like you're telling me there's no heartbeat there's a heart so the heart was beating it's not just tissue (laughs) I hate the way that the medical world uses such harsh terminology when to us that's a little human, like that's a little person. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and probably one of the main things that stands out for me about that time in my life is just the lack of sensitivity. Um, sensitivity is a good word, I yeah. suppose. I mean, they deal with this stuff every day, so they're so desensitized to it, but for me that was that was part of me that they were just cutting out. Anyway, um so he went in and they did the surgery and they afterwards he was showing me photos of what he would what he had done and said sorry we couldn't save your tube so my left tube went along with the baby um he showed me photos and it was a bloodbath um so he said to me yeah i i don't actually think you would have woken up tomorrow it was already you know wow. um yeah so yeah and it's freaky to think because like that morning like they were like, yep, the heartbeat's strong, and then by the afternoon, there was I was hemorrhaging. Like it, it happens really, really fast. So that 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 was a that's our second baby, mm-hmm. um, and I lost my tube. So that was kind of devastating. But it's it's odd, you know, because I I think that's where I I really do think that's where my my idea about needing someone to help me sort of started because. I it took me a long time to to process the fact that that baby had passed but I was just so grateful to be alive so I was just he was my savior in a sense you know what I mean he yeah. kind of saved my life um and then it was after that um that it was probably only 3 months later that we fell pregnant with Benji um but the obstetrician was doing a lot of kind of digging to find out what was going on with me. When they did the surgery, they found um, some endometriosis and some cystic, um, what do you call it, polycystic ovaries. Like I didn't have this, but I had some of the, I had some polycystic cysts or whatever they want to call them. I can't remember what they're called. Yeah. Um, said that he'd cut it, he'd cut out some of that endometriosis. So that was kind of a double whammy while it was in there kind of thing. Um, but after, after that, he was monitoring my ovulation and just, yeah, my whole kind of, he was doing a lot of research and looking into what was going on for me. Um, and I started really learning my the signs and symptoms of fertility um, because I suppose I still had that 
that fertility specialist words lingering in my head, you know, you'll only ever get pregnant through IVF and that never sat well with me. But then I'd, I'd met this other obstetrician who, you know, was doing all this research and encouraging me to learn my body's signs and symptoms. So, you know, looking for that fertile mucus and um, all the things that, you know, we look for when we're, when we're trying to fall pregnant. Um, but anyway, he was watching my um, ovulation, obviously with having lost a fallopian tube. Um, that means that there's not a lot of, if I ovulated on the left, there's not a lot of chance to fall pregnant because you need the fallopian tube to feed the egg through to your uterus. Um, yeah, so um, usually you would assume in my circumstance that um, I would ovulate on the right, that it would go through the tube and into my uterus and that would be a successful pregnancy. But um, my fertility story is just full of miracles because the, it was only months later after the surgery that we fell pregnant with Benji um, and the obstetrician was, as I said, watching me ov- ovulate each month to see where I was ovulating from and he'd said to me, oh, look, don't expect to fall pregnant this month because you've ovulated on the left. Um, you know, we, we know that the egg has nowhere to go. It's just kind of going to float and then dissolve kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Sure. But I ended up, I was a netballer and I ended up tearing my ACL that month um, and the hops, hopstable. <laughs> <laughs> the hospital wanted to do an x-ray um, and they said, is there any chance that you could be pregnant? And I was like, oh, no, but I'll just test in case. Um, and the test was positive. Oh, nice. <laughs> Um, and so I called the obstetrician and I said, I'm pregnant. And he said, oh, surely not. (laughs) Um, anyway, we went up there and, um, did all the things and yeah, he sort of explained that that's really rare, but that sometimes that can happen where the right fallopian tube sucks up the egg from the left, if that's what it comes from and feeds it through. Mind blowing. I know. I know. It's just insane. Incredible. Crazy. Um, and that's our Benji. Um, at that point, we realized that I was low in progesterone. So I was um, getting a lot of help keeping my progesterone levels high enough. If your progesterone goes too low, you just miscarry, um, which is we kind of suspect what's was happening. I don't know if that's got much to do with ectopic. I'd have to look, look into that. I don't know. I can't remember. You might have talked to me about that. I don't remember. But. Okay. Um, so, yeah, low progesterone was an issue throughout Benji's entire pregnancy. He tried to come early way too many times. It was terrifying. I hated being pregnant with that oh, child. No. Um, yeah, he was a threatened miscarriage the whole time. Oh. Um, yeah, so I was having weekly blood tests. <laughs> Actually, I think at one point it was, it was just joyful. Oh, um, and so, yeah, I was having... Uh, I had to use progesterone pessaries three times a day and um, injections as well. And the injections are in your butt. Um, and I think the, the nurse explained it to me. The reason why it's so painful is that it's um, in a sesame oil. It's in quite a thick oil. So it sits in your bottom. So most of that pregnancy I was bruised like like a blue all over my butt. It was mm. I couldn't sit properly. It was awful. Yeah. But um, amazingly through all of that I got him to 38 weeks. Um, which I'm super proud of. Yeah, amazing. Uh, but, yeah, he was born. He, I went into spontaneous labour with him and um, my waters broke and I was terrified. I didn't know what was going on. And I, I, looking back, I just wish that 
I was more educated because I was so fixated on my progesterone and I hung on to every word that obstetrician said, you know, um, of course, but I just wish I had taken more of it into my own hands and really done my research around, you know, choice mm. essentially. It was a private obstetrician, so we just I just kind of went through the motions and did what he told me to do, essentially. I was very much a yes, sir, whatever you say, sir type girl after that because I I suppose I hadn't really processed, you know, everything that happened with the ectopic and then, you know, months later I was pregnant with Benji and I don't know, there was so much that I just wish I took time to process. Yeah, suppose, but, but you would have been so consumed by that fear of losing him. Yeah, exactly. I was terrified to lose baby um and so I suppose I I went into that birth just doing what I was told um Mm -hmm. but my waters broke spontaneously at midnight and by seven I think we were in at the hospital by five um and by seven o'clock they were saying they needed to induce me um because of my spontaneous um my waters had broken spontaneously Mm -hmm. now I know that I could have pushed back um and not agreed to the induction straight away but it's it's quite different the private sector they do things a lot they, they're far more risk adverse I suppose which is we, that's a good thing but sometimes we should just let birth be birth you know yeah. <laughs> um so yeah I was induced and that was like a, when I say induced I wasn't I didn't there was no stretch and sweep there was no gel it was like straight onto the Cinto mm-hmm. um which is the synthetic oxytocin, which takes your contractions from zero to 100. It was, mm. it was horrific. Mm. And so within an hour of that, they were like, we think you should probably have an epidural. And I was like, yep, no worries. Hit me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Having no idea about postpartum, about the fact that I would have to stay on my back, the fact that I would probably lose the ability to wee for myself because I'd need a catheter. It was just... I think, I think had I looked into this stuff beforehand, I, I may have had a different response, but I was also terrified. So I was just doing what I was told. Like it's just a, there's a whole lot I think about that time of my life. <laughs> I think anyone in your situation, though, that, you know, going through what you went through would have made similar choices. Oh, I've often thought that too. 100%. I, yeah, I, I think you only know what you know until you know better. And Exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> So he came out at nine ten that that later that next night, um, and it was a situation where I was vomiting the whole time. Like Tim was having to hold me up. I would push and then I'd vomit and then I'd push, and mm. it was horrible, so horrible because you, I couldn't hold myself up even. Like anyway, you know, up in the stirrups and a bright light in my vagina and a the obstetrician's head. Mm. <laughs> And he looked at me at at that very last kind of stage and said, your baby's heart rate has dropped. You need to get this baby out right now. Um, And, you know, again, I think that was super triggering because I was like, heck, okay, I'm not losing this baby as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just pushed like I thought my head was going to pop off. (laughs) And then, you know, three pushes later he was out. Um, He didn't cry and he was rushed off and, and then... You know, there was no special cutting the cord moment and your baby's crying, cuddle him on your chest. It was not like that. He was rushed off and um, he didn't need recess or anything. So I don't know. I, you know, a certain amount of baby's heart dropping is kind of normal in in birth, but I think when you've had all of that drugs, on, all those drugs on board, the baby doesn't get a rest in between and 
there's a lot that, you know, drugs does that kind of impacts the baby's heart rate. And that's kind of one of the risks of epidurals. So, yeah. so after that, I was like, I am, that was horrible. And to be honest, I was just glad the baby was okay. Again, like the ectopic, I was like, he saved my life. I'm so grateful. Mm. Um, this time around, I was like, he saved my baby. I'm so grateful. There was no like debrief or, um, and I was just so overwhelmed that I didn't even think to even ask. You know what I mean? Like I think I was just so grateful that he was here and I was then I was kind of in that recovery mode and it was really only when I fell pregnant with Micah that I was processing how that all happened with Benji. Like, yeah. Just nuts. So common for that to sort of play out in that sequence. Mm. Mm. So at what point did you feel ready to go back and conceive again? That's a good question. I feel like it was about 12 to 18 months because I was kind of, I really struggled postpartum with Benji. I don't know that it was, uh, like, I don't know that it was postnatal depression, but I definitely struggled physically. Like, I I really struggled with my pelvic floor. I really struggled gaining control because when you've had an epidural, as you would know, you have um, the catheter. And so relearning all of that was really tough. Um, And Benji (laughs) had lip and tongue ties, um, so we had to have that cut at, like, seven days and he didn't latch properly for, like, four months. Um, So, you know, breastfeeding was horrific. Um, It just was was just a lot. He had reflux, so he wasn't gaining weight. Um, They would say things to me like, um, he's failure to thrive, you need to do this and that and the other, and... I just felt like I'd failed him, like, the whole time. He was a teeny tiny baby, 5.8. Um, and I just felt like my body was just continued to fail. Um, and I remember, I don't know, maybe a little bit after that, I, I started to think of myself like I wasn't truly woman, like there was something missing about my womanhood, mm. if that makes sense. Sounds a bit silly and a bit dramatic. No, not at all. It's actually quite common. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially being your first baby as well, and you've, you know, come from this really traumatic birth, which you probably didn't even realize was traumatic at the time. No. But you've, you would have been holding that energy in your body, and then, you know, here you go. Here's this little human that solely relies on you. It's full on. Both of Tim and I both reflect on that time leaving hospital thinking we're walking out of the hospital is anyone going to tell us what to do yeah exactly (laughs) yeah and I was thinking is anyone going to stop me and say you know do this do that but Mm. they that's not what happens they just you know you're in five in hospital for five days and someone breathing down your throat you know every five seconds telling you do this do it this way and then someone tells you do it a different way and and then bam five days hits and you're on your own yeah um it's a lot it is a lot and so I suppose for me I I don't know I was kind of I wanted Benji to have a sibling, but I did not want to be pregnant again. Like pregnancy terrifies me now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was kind of a, a weird space. But we were trying again maybe 80 months later and um, we lost four babies in between Benji and Micah. Oh, um, yeah, they were all miscarriages around the seven, eight-week mark. Um, but I always feel the need to say but when I say that. 
And I think it's because like I know that like people carry their babies to full term and then they give birth to their full term babies and then they lose them. And I suppose like, you're always kind of comparing your story to other people. And I pull myself up and I say, no, like it still matters. Those those were little, your they, they were your babies like that mattered and yeah. um, and they mattered and they mattered to me. Oh. And I think maybe because some of those some of those miscarriages were quite public public or not public but traumatic Mm -hmm. I I remember one in particular which was the most recent one I think um I work um in child protection and I was in Brisbane and I was supposed to be um sharing at a conference about something and I got home from day one I was speaking on day two and I started bleeding and I was pregnant I'd only told my husband and I was bleeding and the first sign of blood for me is terrifying because with Benji, every time I would bleed, it was a sign that my progesterone was too low. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I don't know, it's just seeing blood is awful when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I was in Brisbane. I'm from Toowoomba. I had no idea where the most local, where the, where I, the most local hospital was. Um, so then I ended up, and I didn't have a car. We, we had carpool that was like a group of us. And I'd, so I had to tell one of the, one of my colleagues, you know, I need to go to a hospital. <laughs> I need the car keys. <laughs> um, and she's like, what? No, I'm coming with you. And then so then we sat at a hospital for 10 hours and it was the Royal Brisbane, I think, so it was packed. Um, the emergency ward was, oh, it was just horrid anyway. Um, they're like, no, 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 baby's fine. Sent us home at like midnight. Um, anyway, by the end of the next day, I didn't do – the conference I ended up coming home and by the end of the next day that baby had passed (laughs) so it was kind of like this two-day journey of I don't know and then because I'd involved my colleague my work that uh, anyway oh and then it was just this horrible situation because a colleague that sat right next to me at work fell pregnant so then she was feeling awful because I'd come back to work and I'd had this miscarriage and blah 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 but it kind of just became this thing for me where I would fall pregnant and then moments later I'm miscarrying. And But then after that happened, um, I said to the obstetrician, like, this is getting ridiculous. Like, can we do some more here? <laughs> can we do something else here? Um, and he then things started to get a bit more serious. He took me a bit more seriously then. I don't know why I had to miscarry so many times for someone to take me seriously. But anyway, um, so then I ended up on um, – Samara, that's not its proper name, but essentially that's something to support um, ovulation, even though I, I don't know that ovulation was really the issue because I could fall pregnant, just maintaining a pregnancy that I struggled with. Mm-hmm. Then I was on Pregnal, which is the HCG hormone, and that's an injection. Um, so it just essentially bolsters um, the HCG that you're already getting. And, yeah, the progesterone. Um, I was also seeing a naturopath um, at that time and he put me, like did all these tests and found out that I had an MTHR defect. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but essentially it meant that some of us um, don't process folic acid properly. Okay. Um, so I was then put onto a folinic acid, which is, I don't know, already processed folic acid apparently. I don't know much about it. Okay. But, yeah, I was put on really good quality supplements through a naturopath Um I'll give him a plug, David Howe, because he was absolutely brilliant. Amazing. Um, and, yeah, so the, I, I was trying to get the naturopath and the obstetrician to kind of like work together <laughs> to support me because 
But it's funny, you know, like obstetricians do not like sharing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, I sort of seen them both and I just did what I wanted at that point. And I think when you get to that point, that's when you start taking control a bit more and being like, no, I'm going to see the obstetrician and I'm going to see a naturopath and I'm going to do this and do that. And, you know, I started to take, take some of that power back. Mm. Um, and I think it was just well overdue. Like it was time for me to step into my own by now, like – like no one cares about these babies dying. I'm the one who's yeah. like broken and sad about these babies. Um, and I just wasn't willing to go through it anymore. Like so the story kind of like that's my personal journey but I've also got my photography business and um, I don't even know how to tell this part of it but essentially it's so, it's so important to my journey because um, I started photographing birth um, in 2000. And, I want to say 19, 18, 19. But the way that came about is just so crazy because I've been wanting to photograph birth, like babies and birth and that whole world, it just, it never gets old to me. Like it's the most incredible, amazing miracle and I just wanted to be around it. And even though my heart was so broken for my own journey, I was still so drawn to it, you know. Um, And being, I don't know, I just love women and I love seeing them in that like in that world like it's vulnerable yet empowering and it's this mm. it's this crazy space where we become these uh, I don't know it's just it's overwhelmingly cool yeah. um but essentially that story you know I'll tell it very quickly um is that I had had a miscarriage um I think this was you know, one of the four in between Benji and Micah um and I was at home. I was still bleeding. Um, I was mis- I was absolutely miserable. Like I was so so sad. Um, and it was Benji was at home, and I thought I don't want him to be seeing me so miserable like this. Like I need to take him out. Um, so I took him out to one of our local parks, and he was playing. And I was just thinking, oh, I just don't know if I can handle seeing someone who's pregnant. Like I just hope I don't see anybody I know that's pregnant. Um, and it's funny because like I really truly can be happy for other people like someone who's pregnant like it's not always a trigger you know what I mean like I can still be happy for people that are pregnant um, but so it's not that but I think when it's so close to when you've lost a baby it's just at the forefront of your mind yeah. so it's just a bit harder to do that yeah so we're at the park and then along comes Jess um, Jess was on her bike with her little boy who was on his bike and she was wearing this beautiful pregnant belly I'm gonna cry just thinking about it she was just so beautiful and here I was trying so hard not to be um in my own head you know what I mean mm-hmm. trying to be really there with her because um she's just such a beautiful human and I didn't want her to think I didn't want her to feel sad for me I wanted to just enjoy that moment with her and anyway it was my you know when you're about to cry and it sits in your throat? I just couldn't. It was hurting. <laughs> I had to just let it out and it all came out and um, she just held me and it's just like a crazy God thing because I just, it was almost like we crossed paths in that moment. Like it was divine intervention. Yeah. Um, because we just sat together and she cried with me and I mean she's sporting this beautiful pregnant belly and she's being so kind and thoughtful. And um, it was just a beautiful moment. It was a beautiful moment. And she she prayed for me and it was just, it was amazing. And I walked away from that thinking that the world is still a good place. <laughs> yeah, wow. 
Wow. Yeah, and after that, I was just so I was so overwhelmed by her kindness, and I reached out to her and I just said, "Hey, look, I really want to get into birth photography. Um, I would be honoured to photograph your birth as a, as a thank you for our little moment today, and um, to to bless you and." Um, and she spoke to her husband about it and they were both like, yep, we're in. Um, and it was only months later that I photographed my first birth. Um, and Jess, um, was a free birth. She free birthed at home. Um, yeah, her birth story is up on my website and it's that photo that I shared from her birth photos, um, went bonkers. It just went viral, um, to the point where I could not keep up. Like I shared those photos and, like they've won multiple awards. Like it's just one of those things, you know, like it's if people truly understood how pivotal Jess was to my own personal story. And at that point I had no idea the impact that that moment would have on my own personal journey yeah. around pregnancy and birth, but also just for my business, like just crazy. So then I end up photographing multiple births after that and with each birth I suppose it impacted me personally around what I was going through because I started to notice that home births were these beautiful supported mother focused baby centered obviously um, experiences these women were having their babies safely at home and it started to really impact me because I started thinking there must be something seriously wrong with me that I have to birth through a obstetrician who you know, nothing's okay. <laughs> they won't allow this. They won't allow that. Mm. Um, and it started to really make me question, like, what is wrong with me? What is so wrong with my womanhood that I don't get to have this supportive, beautiful birth that these women are having? And then I also started to notice trends at hospital. Women that are going to hospital are often, you know, treated like a problem and they're forced to be on their back and they're forced to do this and they don't feel like they have choice. And and it just got me questioning and thinking and, and, yeah, and I suppose that's kind of what got me to the place where I am now in terms of I left my baby at home. Like, that's just <laughs> insane to me. Like, at the start of this pregnancy with Marco, I was not there. Like, I was not home birthing. Oh, okay. So even yeah. after all the photography stuff, you were still questioning yeah. the safety? Yeah. Was- so you were still kind of anchored in that fear? Yes, totally. I mean, I've lost... Uh, but I mean, Michael was our eighth baby. I was terrified about what would happen to this child. And it's crazy because, you know, I just had four miscarriages. Um, Benji's pregnancy was hard and scary. And I just didn't think I was meant to have babies. And I've even had people say that to me. Like someone said to me once, do you think like how many babies is enough before you stop? Um, no. Oh, I could cry just saying that. Like that's oh. so sad to me, Sky. Like why would someone say that? Yeah, that's so insensitive. Um, yeah, and 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 other people like I'm a Christian, and I've had Christian people say to me, you know, is it, you know, maybe you should just accept that this is your journey, and um, that maybe you should just, you know, focus on the kids you work with. I work with um, teen- teenagers, <laughs> out of home care, mm-hmm. um, and you know, focus your love on that. Um, and you know, is it really right for you to intervene with your pregnancies? Like maybe you should just let it take its course and see what happens. And, um, and you know, the only time, like I've had people cut me off because they fell pregnant. And I think, you know, today being, you know, infant and pregnancy loss, like today's the day that we remember them. Yeah. Um, one, 
I've had people like you know cut me off because they were pregnant. They don't people don't know how to talk about pregnancy loss. They don't know how to talk about miscarriage. It's it's a scary thing. It's it's like death. We don't know how to talk about grieving. We don't know how to say to someone who's experiencing a deep heartache. We don't know how to deal with that very well, especially Australians. We're useless at it. Um, not all of us. But there was this one time where um, a colleague of mine, um, Katie, she's the most beautiful human being, and I'm going to tell her to, that I mentioned her because she she's the only person ever who has come to me and said, um, Amy, I just want you to know that I'm pregnant, but I know you, I know your journey, and I'm I'm feeling so much for you, and I like she just wanted to say it to me so that I didn't find out another way, and the fact that she even considered me. Yeah. I don't know, it was just so beautiful that she did that. Instead of cutting me off and being like, I'm just going to avoid her for the rest of my life, yeah, so she just said, look, I I just care enough about you to let you know this way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And it just felt so thoughtful. And she was so – the fact that she thought about me in that moment blew me away. I was like, you deserve to enjoy this pregnancy. You do not need to be thinking about me right now. The fact that she even did. Yeah. It just blew my mind anyway. And I think that's kind of what I say to people now, like don't avoid people just because they've had something horrible happen. Like go up to them and say, I'm thinking of you. Like, you know what, there's no one thinking about that pregnancy loss more than me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You bringing it up is not going to make me suddenly remember, oh, that's right, I had a miscarriage. Yeah, so <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm already thinking about it. So you avoiding it just makes it feel like they don't matter. Yeah. And even people that have had miscarriages, I think maybe some people just, like maybe I think about this stuff a lot because I'm in the birth world, mm-hmm. um, but even people that have experienced miscarriages that I know of have avoided me their entire pregnancy right. because they weren't sure how to approach it with me. And I think I just wish people would reflect a bit more. Like how do you feel when you're hurting or you're deeply grieving? Do you want people to ignore that or do you, would, does it feel nice when someone says to you, I'm thinking of you, like I know that must have been really awful. And I don't know, just say something. Yeah. <laughs> So how did you work through all the fear that you were anchored in during your pregnancy to get yourself to a place of feeling confident to home birth? So um, I was, you know, on the injections and the tablets and all the things, the pessaries, all the things. And I suppose after months of doing that, you're like, come on, come on, uh, over it. It's a bit like people going through IVF. You just get, it just wears thin month after month of doing that. Yeah. But I think too, when you've had um, recurrent miscarriages, it's, it's, it's no longer... It's sad to say this, oh, but it's no longer like, yay, I'm pregnant. I can't wait to meet this little person. It's like, oh, crap, I'm pregnant. Am I, how's this? Yeah. Um, and am I strong enough to handle another loss? Like I want it. It's such a confusing time because you, you're like, you're not ready to give up and you you want that little baby, but you, you also know that you may have to say goodbye again. Um. So I don't know, it's just a very confusing time and I I, I almost ignored that I was pregnant um, apart from the fact that I was doing all the things still throughout pregnancy. Um, I didn't really acknowledge his existence. That sounds awful, but yeah. I, it was almost like my heart was like, you can't handle this. <laughs> I'm just going to lock that away for a little bit. Mm. Um, I didn't announce it on my socials till I was like 24 weeks. Um, I didn't tell anybody. I just kind of kept it to myself and I I suppose it wasn't really until I went to, um, it was actually called a birth re- retreat um, by a local doula put, put on mm-hmm. um, and I decided I would go because um, 
there was a lot of stuff that that she was putting on that day that I needed. Um, you know, processing our own birth stories from the past, um, you know, embodiment, which was a huge thing that really touched me, like getting in touch with your body and how things are feeling inside and um and she we talked a lot about fear and and it was amazing because it was just like a circle of women all of us were pregnant um and just we each shared our own stories and even that day it's hard for me it's it's okay for me to sort of share on my socials and even here with you but when you're in a space with other women who are pregnant I almost feel like I don't want to talk because I don't want to bring the misery yeah because there's this, you know, these beautiful women experiencing pregnancy for maybe the first time or maybe the third or fourth time and maybe they haven't had that kind of journey and I don't want to... Project your fear. Well, exactly. I don't want yeah. them to become fearful after hearing my story. Um, so I kind of didn't share until someone made me cry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it was one of those kind of days where we, we, we faced a lot of fears and talked a lot about our story and and these women were so in touch with their bodies. Like at the end of the day we had a photo shoot and I was literally the only one who was like, keeping the clothes on, guys. I'm not really <laughs> pregnancy yet. I don't even have a bump really yet. You guys go. They were all like, you know, embracing their motherhood and their womanhood, you know. Like mm-hmm. I was questioning before that but – that that day sparked something inside of me to work harder to get to the truth. Mm-hmm. Like what am I believing about myself that's actually not true um, and why do I not deserve to have a midwife that cares about me, continuity of care? Why don't I deserve continuity of care? Why do I have to stick with an obstetrician who tells me I'm not allowed to have a, a water birth because the risk of E. coli? or that he doesn't want me in this new room at the hospital because the lighting's not great. <laughs> you know, it was all very convenient for the hospital, but none of that was based around what's comfortable for me. Um, and it started making me think, you know, like, why don't I question this stuff? Like, yes, I've been with this substitution for seven years now, and and I suppose a lot of I had been so grateful to him and, but he's just doing his job, you know. At the end of the day, I, it's my job to create a birth space that suits my story and my baby and my body. Yeah. Um, if I'm going to then stick with an, if I'm going to stick with an obstetrician and then have trauma afterwards because I didn't ask questions, that's really not his fault. It's really because I haven't done the work to ask the questions to create the birth that I want. Because he's just doing his job. If you give your pregnancy to an obstetrician, they're very likely to do the least risky thing which is you know it's it's based around convenience for them mm-hmm. and there's there's words around pre- Benji's birth that obstetrician that obstetrician had said um when he went to induce me this is totally backtracking I know but there's been so many things he said over the years that I never questioned until now like that day of Benji's birth he said to me um yeah let's induce her now because I'd really like to be home for dinner at seven oh, wow. um, and I've never forgotten that you know um yeah. and I think that's the thing when you go to a hospital they've got multiple clients like multiple patients um they're seeing lots of different people and they are on a schedule and tomorrow they have to get up and go to the clinic and do you know what I mean like it's just very very different space you know after that that day that 
um, birth retreat day that I went to with um, Jess, our local doula here, um, it, it, yeah, something changed inside of me and I started questioning things. And my next appointment with the obstetrician, I was asking, oh, can I have a water birth? And he said to me, <laughs> 100 years ago in Toowoomba, the maternal death rate was 12 in 100. And I remember thinking, what's that got to do with a water birth? <laughs> and he said, well, I don't like water birth because there's a risk of your baby catching a coli. And I said, right, okay, I'll have to look into that. And then I said, okay, well, um, can I have, you know, at, at the private hospital here they've got like a new birth suite, like it's a revamped. Um, and that's when I said to him, can I, to, can I at least try to be in that room at the hospital when I give birth? And he said, um, no, I prefer you don't because the lighting's not very good in there. Um, and I was like, can't you just wear a head torch if you need to stay? China, can you not just wear a torch on your head? Um, anyway, I walked away so disheartened from that conversation because everything that I had even very gently hinted that I would like was very quickly shut down. Yeah. Um, and that's when I decided to contact a midwife and have a conversation. So I called Sonia. She came around to my house. She was beautiful. Um, and... That happened multiple times before I ended up booking her. <laughs> we had hours and hours and hours of conversations. And I remember once she said to me, because I at that point was thinking, okay, great, I'll stick with the private hospital and I will just hire a Sonia like for continuity of care. So I, she can support me through pregnancy, through my birth and then postpartum. Um, I put that to the obstetrician. He said, absolutely not because the, hops, the hospital, I keep saying that. <laughs> The hospital only allows their, you know, the midwives that work at the hospital to be there during birth. But I was like, well, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so then I would have had, I mean, and even with that, I would have had to have paid the private obstetrician fees plus the private midwife. Yeah. Um, and like he was a fairly, his pregnancy started off, you know, beautifully. He was strong. The heartbeat was strong. There was never really a question around him being viable. Um the pregnancy being viable and I mean I was still on progesterone but it never dipped as low as Benji's did um so I was still the obstetrician was still monitoring me fairly closely in terms of my progesterone but um yeah there was never a problem problematic moment in terms of that pregnancy so the fear was from the past really for me it was not a new thing it was the past just would not stop rearing its ugly head um and I just wasn't ready to go through another miscarriage, I suppose. Um, so it wasn't really till I want to say closer to 30 weeks. No, maybe not that late. But I didn't finally decide to walk away from the obstetrician and into um, handing my care fully over to a private midwife until quite late in my pregnancy. Um, but I continued to see the obstetrician. It's a quite, a, quite an odd circumstance for Queensland we don't really have a model that works with um, an obstetrician and a private midwife is kind of sharing obstetricians don't like to share yeah. <laughs> so it was a tricky kind of space for a while where I was planning to book the midwife but also didn't want to I had this thing I didn't want to offend my obstetrician you know what I mean yeah we well, had a long history with him uh, so that's understandable yeah Anyway, so I suppose it was some of the things that he had said, the questions that he very quickly shut down. I had continued to question things and to really think about, you know, why am I seeing myself as a failure at womanhood when this pregnancy is safe? Um, and 
Sonia was p- so key. Sonia and Jess, um, the doula that from that birth retreat. Um, I also had um, a birth processing session with Jess, which was incredible. It was so epic. Um, and she just, I suppose we stepped through my pregnancy with Benji and all the other babies and talked about, um, you know, what's the truth and what's the lie here. Um, and, you know, I did the same sort of stuff with Sonia and um, I, I don't think I would have got to this place of birthing at home without them or without this, the processing journey mm-hmm. because the fear never went away. Like even by the time I was ready to birth, I was like, I'm scared and I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, okay. I think that's also, I, I read a post on Instagram recently. It was a, something along the lines of like everybody gets that sense of fear around birth because it's a lot. You know, it's the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. Um, I suppose photographing birth too, like I've, I've seen some pretty um, epic cat one type situations. Um, that's, you know, they, they added to my fear a little bit actually. Um, one of them was um, a shoulder dystocia that happened only weeks before I gave birth myself. So um, I, again, had to really process that with, with Sonia, my midwife. And it's interesting, you know, because a lot of the education that we did through our private midwife just kept leading us, both Tim and I, to the point where we were like, women need to birth at home. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, your natural oxytocin and your the, the hormones that you naturally produce are there and they do their job and they do their job well. If you then take that to hospital, like, for example, um, for you to feel, like, comfortable and safe and to produce, like, the oxytocin that you need to birth your baby, um, you need that low light, you need to feel, you know, love and connection and you need to feel relaxed. As soon as I walk into a hospital, my body tenses up and the bright lights are they're bright. And you'll find, and I've seen this through, through the births that I photographed, as soon as women kind of enter the hospital, things tend to slow down yeah. um, because your body starts restricting and you start holding tight um and that brings in that adrenaline as well which you know puts things at a halt a lot of things and even with shoulder dystocia like some of the you know high risk emergency kind of cat one situations that 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 people face when you're in a hospital um the drugs that you take a lot of the times the risks associated with those drugs are things like lowered heart rate or blah 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 blah. um but the shoulder dystocia um if that situation happens in a hospital and you've had an epidural, you can't get up onto your all fours. You can't do a lot of the manoeuvres that they would do um, to move the baby shoulder. Whereas if you are at home and there's a shoulder dystocia, um, that very quickly can be rectified because there's multiple different manoeuvres that midwives can do. Because you can get up on all fours, you can get you can move around more freely. You can medications on board. Um, so Sonia and I had a big talk about that um, at like, you know, 38 weeks because I just photographed this shoulder dystocia and it horrified me. Um, thankfully, my very last birth was a home birth and it was her fourth home birth and it was beautiful and Sonia was the midwife actually. Um, oh, nice. But I suppose in terms of like getting to the point of birthing at home, like that did not happen overnight. Like I had a lot of counselling, a lot of hours and hours and hours of debating and talking to to Sonia and talking to the obstetrician and talking to, you know, everybody, all the people, my husband. We did a lot of work to get to the point where we felt that it was safe 
to birth at home. Um, and I suppose I like to say that because I know how scared I was and I come from that world where we just do what the doctor says and we trust things, you know. Yeah. It's only really now that I, you know, through Micah's pregnancy that I started questioning how is that be, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like they're not always doing things because it suits mum and bub. A lot of the time people are doing things based on convenience for their own scenario mm-hmm. um, and hospital policy doesn't ah. always suit mum and bub and you're allowed to question it <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean like it's we're allowed to question things and if we don't like it choose something different like that's okay people have this idea that birthing at home isn't safe but actually I beg to differ and I actually think a lot of the times it's far safer yeah and there's enough evidence out there to support that as well so speaking of home birth should we jump into Micah's birth now yeah yeah so um <laughs> It's so crazy. You know how you hear people talk about their second and the second being so much easier? Yes. <laughs> I was expecting that, I suppose, because, um, you know, you hear these women saying, you know, you know, a few hours and bam, there he was. Um, it was not quick. Um, I was awake all of Tuesday. So it started on a Tuesday night. Um, I, I was getting the contractions and they were kind of semi-regular, but they weren't enough for me to need to get up out of bed or to – to do anything really it was just keeping me awake um, and then by Wednesday morning they were intensifying and they were um I was distracted by them if that makes sense yeah. um was pacing at that point <laughs> um and I just continued that through Wednesday um and we kind of thought he would come Wednesday night because it was you know I was sort of starting to struggle with the contractions and it was getting um, you know, pretty distracting and whatever. But then we just kept going through the night, Wednesday night, um, just kept going, just kept going um, and would be on the phone to Sonia regularly um, and she was just saying, no, your body's doing exactly what it needs to do. Um, you know, th- we need to get to kind of three to four in ten minutes and they need to be lasting up to a minute. At that point they were probably lasting 30 seconds, but they were, there was three in ten minutes, but they were probably only lasting, you know, 30 seconds. Um, and then that just kind of continued and I had um, a birth playlist on my Mac um, and I just had that playing and it was really lovely because I I had all of my stuff up on the walls and I'd made this birth space, you know, like I created this kind of safe, pretty space for myself. Um, and we did this activity in our birthing course with Sonia um, where she had us hold a handful of ice um, for a whole minute and she did it we did it three separate times the first time she gave us no coping mechanisms the second time she gave us um, she told us to look at words around the room and focus on some words and the third time around she asked us to listen to music and when she did that this I think the third time around must have been the words because third time around I reckon I could have kept holding that ice for probably two minutes um I was just so fixated on, I think the word was empower. There was a word empower was on the word on the wall. It was a classroom. Um, And I remember thinking, yes, I can do this. Like pain is just momentary. It's a functional pain. Like I just got, I got myself talking positive like that. Um, So the words were really helpful. So all all along my walls, you will see in the photos, um, um, there were words on the wall like release, peace, trust, breathe, surrender, believe, like all of these really you know, power words that are encouraging. I thought that would help me cope in those really t- tricky moments. 
but it was actually it was actually the rest in between the contractions where I was listening to worship music actually and I had it on really slowly and it was in the middle of the night so it was dark Tim was in the chair just kind of watching me pace um, and in those moments in between the contractions I would just kind of close my eyes and and listen to the words of the songs um, and there was this one song called The Blessing by Kari Job that um, a friend of mine actually when I very first fell pregnant she would sing over me um, and there were a few times that I was, I don't know, scared about what was going on with Micah and I would play it and I would sing it at the top of my lungs on the way to the obstetrician's office. And um, it's, it, I know the words that really hit me are um, something to do with blessing, uh, the blessing, I mean, bless your children, your children's children. And that, I don't know, the, the words were just so beautiful. And I, I remember singing them over and over and over um, while I would, you know, in, in those in-between moments mm. um, because it was such a – it was kind of like his anthem. Yeah. <laughs> so that just continued and then we called Sonia a couple of times through the night thinking it was happening and then she's like, we're not quite there yet. But by 8.30 that m- Thursday morning she was at my house and it was like tough. She was, you know, rubbing oils into my back. Um, to, I would, would have to hold his hands. Um, unfortunately, poor Tim had sprained his ankle and hurt his hand that day playing with Ben. Oh, <laughs> and no. I kept squeezing him thinking, and then I remember thinking, oh, gosh, his hand, I hope I'm not hurting him. But I just felt the need to squeeze, you know, um, by that point. And I was trying to really loosen my jaw because we know that, like, you know, our jaw helps to loosen our pelvic floor. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's this weird thing. Um, and... Yeah, I was trying to do all the things, you know, like the horse breath, like that low vibration kind of noises. Um, and obviously because I'd never experienced a pain-free birth before, I uh, – pain-free, medication-free birth, um, unmedicated. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, I didn't really know how I would respond to the pain um, and how I would cope, but I really tried to keep my mouth and my jaw loose. Um, I tried to breathe up like um, breathe up and then like slow – I can't remember what I was about to say, but essentially breathing was a really huge part of coping through those contractions. Yeah. And I was in the shower a lot um, and up on my toes a lot. Like I don't know what that's about, but Sonia said that a lot of women do it where we feel the need to get, get up on our toes in, in that peak of a contraction. Oh, interesting. It is interesting. Um, actually, a friend of mine, Bianca, Andy and Ollie Photography, she's actually got a photo that kind of went viral of a lady up on her toes over a toilet. Um, and that's actually where I first thought, oh, I wonder what that's about. But then I found myself naturally doing it. I did not think, oh, I might go for my toes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just kind of naturally do things. Um, and my husband, I feel like I need to mention this, he's actually a very um, reserved kind of person. So I was kind of nervous at that point because I was – feeling the need to be kind of vocal um, and make these kind of low vibration noises. And I didn't know what to expect of myself. As I said before, like having the epidural with Benji, I'd made no noise. <laughs> I didn't even know when to push. I was told when to, that, when to do all these things. Yeah. Um, anyway, I was thinking to myself, what is he thinking? But he was so amazing. Like it has actually been so good for our marriage because we were, he was just there, you know. And I think – 
we women just want our man to be there, just to be there, not to tell us how to do things, not to, you know, just to be, <laughs> just yeah. to be there. Um, and he was, he was so present. And, you know, at those times where I was like, <sighs> like I was like making these kind of like, you know, primal noises he was like that's it just get it out just do what you got to do make whatever noise you need to make and I was like oh, okay cool he's here with me and he's cool he gets it um so that was very it was very cool for us it was it almost bound us spiritually you know like yeah. it was it was really like for a while there I desperately wanted my mum to come and to be there um but that didn't happen because she's in New South Wales and thanks Palish. <laughs> He couldn't be there. Um, but you know what? It's just another divine intervention because I really think it needed to be Tim because, like, he needed a place. He needed to be the one that I needed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so things just kind of get kept getting intense. And, um, you know, those last couple of hours of contractions, I was in the shower. The shower, like, the hard hitting shower in my back was the best. Um, but needing a lot of support at that point too like I I at that point had Sonia Meg had arrived I think she was on the way or she was arriving Hannah the birth photographer was there who was also incredible she was like doula slash photographer she was amazing mm-hmm. um and yeah by accident I used up all our hot water and of course our hot water system is electric so it was taking forever to heat up the water and the pool um wasn't quite ready at that point but I was getting to the point of pushing like I was in the shower and I suddenly felt the urge to go to the toilet and I was like I could and I could not figure out if it was I need to do a poo or I'm pushing a baby out right now like I didn't really know what was going on um but the shower water was going cold and um it became a bit of a chaotic moment because I needed to get out of the shower, um, but I'd started to bleed, like I'd started to leak um, blood and mucusy stuff. I think you know my waters were about to pop, uh, so I get out of the shower. Hannah and Tim both helped me to our bedroom, and then of course within minutes of being on all fours on our bed, um, my waters broke all over our bed, and I'm saying to Tim like I need. I can't help help it. I need to push. And I was like, like at that point, like I was pushing, I was hardcore pushing. But because of the hot water situation, Sonia had ducked out to get her urns. Um, and then Hannah went in. <laughs> Hannah was like calling Sonia, Sonia, she's pushing. The waters are broken. <laughs> like it was kind of this. And Sonia was like, I'm just around the corner. Everything's fine. Like we'll be there shortly. Meg's coming. Meg's, Meg's around the corner. Um, and anyway, so they all get there and they're all heating water up on the stove and, Eventually I get into the pool <laughs> um, and then I, yeah, just keep pushing. It kept, and it wasn't, you know, you know how people talk about don't push, like there's no pushing involved. It's, I don't think that's true. Like it's just instinctual. It's not, yeah. you're not pushing because you're thinking I need to put, I'm pushing now. You're pushing because your body's making you push. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, that was happening and I was just sort of at that point his head was coming out and I could feel it and it was so – I was like, this is happening. I'm doing it. I, I'm here. This is going to happen because the whole time I sort of wasn't convinced that I wouldn't end up at the hospital. Um, I don't know that I fully trusted myself at that point yeah. to stick it out, you know. But I was already doing it. I guess I just didn't realise that I was that far 
you know, it had been days at this point um, and I was just so tired. Um, actually, I might just backtrack a tiny bit because when I was in the shower, I had had enough. I was crying. I was begging for it to be over and Sonia came in and she touched my face and she just said to me, Amy, you are going – I said to her, please, Sonia, tell me this is over. I cannot keep doing this. I'm so done. Um, and she grabbed my face and said, darling, you are going to be wrapped up with your baby in bed by dinner time. And like Sonia would not – I was actually kind of annoyed at her throughout because she would not give me time frame. She would not say anything by your body's doing what it needs to do. You're doing great. And I was like, no, tell me it's nearly over. Um, <laughs> so you would have been in transition at that point, right? yeah I was in transition shower um and you know when she said that I was like right I believe every word she just said and I just gave me this new motivation you know like I just found that extra little bit um that I needed um and it was almost like she just knew exactly when to say what she needed to say and it was everything that she said that um anyway fast forward I'm in the pool (laughs) Um, and yeah, felt his head coming out and then he crowned like at the top of his little head for like five minutes. So in the photos you'll see his head looks kind of grey um, and that's because he kind of sat halfway, his head was kind of halfway out for like five minutes before it popped out. Um, a lot of the time that doesn't really happen that way. The babies will like, they'll come out like to the top of that bit where you see that the bones kind of overlapping their head kind of looking squished up and then their head pops out. But he kind of sat halfway like around his forehead um, for like five minutes, which is why it's grey. Yeah, and then when his head came out, like I remember thinking I would prefer this to those last moments of contractions any day. Like I will do this part any day. Wow. <laughs> it's just so odd, so odd. I thought that would be the most painful part yeah, about the fire. And so once his head was out, the feeling of him turning, like the rotation after that, oh, man, I hope I never forget that. It was the weirdest, like I want to say disgusting, but also beautiful, like feeling like of him moving and rotating in my pelvis. It's just miraculous that they know what they just know what to do. Your body knows what to do. It just I, I wasn't thinking, okay, now rotate. Like you yeah. know. Like so miraculous. Like the whole thing. I think that's why I love it so much. It's just full of miracle, full of wonder. Yeah. Body just doing what it was created to do. It's just very cool. Mm. Um and then after he rotated, he just kind of shot out and I it was definitely a pushing scenario, but it was not in my control. I just remember being fixated on Meg and Sonia's voices um, because I really didn't know what was going on or what to do. But I was just very focused on being loose in my mouth, on trusting what my body was doing. So just going with it, not fighting against it, not holding tightness. Like thinking, I was thinking loose, like loosen, um, and just really not consciously doing anything, just letting it all happen and really fixating on their voices. So whatever breathing they would say to do, I would do. Whatever, you know, don't push, don't push. So because he was sitting in that kind of really super stretched 
point of his forehead for five minutes or six minutes or so. Sonia was saying to me, just do not push right now. Do not push right now because she could see how stretched my perineum was and she was, like, worried that it would really badly tear. And did you tear? Yeah, so I tore, but um, the same spot that I tore with Benji. But it was just those moments afterwards. It's almost like it's I've never been on a drug that could make you feel that way. But it it's like the most euphoric, insane moment of realisation that that just happened. Like that just happened here in my bed, in my lounge room. Um, and we were just all crying and I just remember thinking, like, this is what I've been working for. This is this moment meeting him and he's – and ugh, it wasn't traumatic. You did it. And it, Yeah, I did it. And I think in the video I even say that, like, I did that, I just did that. Mm. Like, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain the emotion around it because I don't really have the ability to articulate yeah. that feeling. Like, because, I, I yeah, I think when you – go through such a journey of loss and then make a decision to birth at home like it's a very I don't know there's a lot yeah and he's amazing like so many things I prayed for like I I prayed that he would not have tongue ties he does not have tongue ties I prayed that he'd be a healthy weight and he's like 9.5 oh wow nice work yeah I remember pulling him up out of the water and thinking who are you like (laughs) Who is this chunky little delight? Mm. He was just like, and his eyes were wide open, like wide open, yeah. just staring at me. And he was so different to Benji. I just kept thinking, who is this stranger? <laughs> like, <laughs> so bizarre. And so many other things that have just been such a miracle. Like, I don't know, the fact that he was overdue. Like, I had this sense of failure around Benji you know, because he was always wanting to come out too early. Yeah. The fact that I got Michael all the way to 41 weeks, like that was healing for me because my heart needed to to know that it's a different baby and a different scenario. And I, I suppose I kept referring to Benji because that's really all I knew. But Michael has just been such a redemptive kind of little yeah. baby. Bless. Um, and what about your placenta? Anything special with that? I don't know. I I toyed with the idea, like, you know, I've come this far. Why not go all the way um, with the placenta thing? But, look, I'm satisfied because with Benji's placenta, this is another thing. I didn't get to see it. It just was chopped and taken away. I never – I don't even remember how I birthed it. I don't remember birthing it. I don't – it just happened, I think. Yeah. Um, well, I actually think, you know, they gave me the jab and they just got it done. But I don't remember any of that. Um, I think that's another reason why I wanted to make sure that I didn't have any drugs this time is because I wanted to be really present in postpartum and with Benji's, with my postpartum with Benji, I I was miserable, I was coming down obviously and just was not really lucid, I don't feel. Um, I don't know, maybe that's just because I was a first-time mum and it's all very overwhelming but I wanted to be really present this time around and I think – just even the fact that I could get up and go have a shower in my own shower and lay on my lounge and yeah. so different. Like, and the midwives were just so, like, and even Tim, like, they were amazing. Like, we were pottering around doing our washing and, like, afterwards, while we were just taking in the glory of this little baby, they were pottering around doing all these things for us and, I don't know, it just felt like a village. That's what it felt like. Yeah. And that's what home birth feels like. It feels like... 
this is what it's meant to be. It's meant to be like this, you know. Absolutely. I feel like when you're in hospital, it's just doesn't. Well, it certainly didn't feel like that for me. I know it's still very early days, but how has your postpartum period been this time around? Um, worlds apart. Like yeah. so much nicer. Um, and I think it feels like Mike has been around a lot longer because I was home straight away with Benji. I was in hospital for five days before I was released, and then. Oh, yeah. I just remember being kind of traumatised by not being able to poo or wee mm. without, like, because of the catheter when you've had an epidural, you have to kind of relearn that. And my body did not just relearn that easily. Like, it was kind of awful. And then because Benji had the tongue ties and whatever, um, he wasn't. He also had terrible reflux. He wasn't gaining weight. So, I don't know. There was a lot around breastfeeding and the tongue ties and my own body and needing to heal and that kind of stuff that was horrible with Benji. But this time around, even though I tore, I think when you've taken control of your birth and you you do the work to understand every decision and why everything has happened the way it's happened and, like, you're okay with that. Like, I've torn this time too, but I don't feel traumatised by that. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just been a really blissful postpartum because I think because I don't have any of those synthetic drugs on board, I'm not having to process any of that yuck out of my body. Yeah. I'm healing my body's been able to heal straight away um and i had a lot of julie bell's products from um blissful herbs so um i've been really on top of that and a lot of um like the no bleed tea stuff the midwives are like put that in your pads and freeze them so that was a cool tip um so i did that um and was drinking all of the things and all of the balms and the roll-ons and the <laughs> all the tinctures breastfeeding's been easy like he's just like straight away because he um doesn't have any tongue or lip ties like he's just been um he's a dream baby what key piece of advice would you give to any expectant mothers out there um my sister's pregnant right now um and just to say to her like being able to give her advice around like ask questions and don't just say yes because you feel intimidated or coerced. Like if a doctor's saying, you know, you'll put your baby at risk if you do this, if you do that, like say why. Why would I be putting my baby at risk? Um, that's one thing that was really pivotal for me with Sonia and why I decided to end up really go on that path is that she had – I think a lot of the terminology that obstetricians and doctors use is, you know, they don't even realise they're threatening or being coercive but – they just kind of, they do a lot of assumed consent and they do a lot of, um, well, I'm going to do this now and they assume that's consent when it's not really. Yeah. So because of um, all of the losses and whatever, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the things that the obstetricians say to you are things like, oh, well, you'll put your pregnancy at risk or you'll, you'll, that's not safe for your baby or whatever. Um, so we, Sonia played out this scenario with me where she said to me, what if you go to your obstetrician and he says to you, you can't go to a different like – you shouldn't go to a different version of care because you'll be putting your baby at risk. Um, and when she – when we role-played that, like the fear that rose up inside me about that phrase, um, putting your baby at risk, yeah, it, it made me comply. Straight away I was like, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd cave straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I realised at that point that I need support. Like I need I need a village because <laughs> I don't have the courage. Some, when, when you've had loss and – you're scared. You don't. You don't want to make a decision that's not right for your baby. You know, like I think the village is key. 
um, I've totally gone off track here, but I think the advice for new mums really would be around asking questions. Don't stop asking questions until you, you feel deep in your soul that you're satisfied that you're making a decision that's safe for your baby and safe for you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your inspiring journey with us, Amy. I'm sure it will help a lot of women on a similar path. My pleasure. That brings us to the end of today's episode, everyone. What a roller coaster of emotions, but such a beautiful, magical ending. Interviewing Amy also brought to my attention how little I know about pregnancy loss and fertility issues that some women are struggling with, which is so much more common than we realize. And we really need to remove the silence around this topic because no woman should ever feel ashamed of their journey or cut off, as Amy says. This was such an eye opener episode for me with some really helpful tips around how to better support anyone around you that is experiencing this type of journey. I hope Amy's story inspires you to seek out the birth you deserve and shows you that it is absolutely possible to work through the fear that comes with experiencing pregnancy loss. You deserve to have a woman-centered, transformative birth. For any of my listeners that are struggling with fertility or pregnancy loss right now, I just hope this episode gives you the boost in morale you need to continue to fight for your miracle baby. I would love to know what you think over on the PBA Instagram. Otherwise, I'll see you guys next week for another episode of Positive Birth Australia.